0: Hi, I'm Sage Latora, I'm here with Adam Blinkensop, and this week, another question. What's the deal with Blades in the Dark? Because it is out! It's out! We actually are both sitting here with our fancy uh, hardcover special edition, uh, where John basically decided, hey, it's never going to be on store shelves, so it doesn't have to say the name of the game or anything crazy like that. Um, Kind of a beautiful book.
1: Yeah, it feels like shark skin. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, so um, I think this is the first time that we've dedicated an entire episode to a single game quite so directly
1: yeah you know well accept our checks in the mail john anytime <laughs> which i guess i should
0: uh get to up front and say that, like <laughs> Yeah, full john, disclosure right full, full di- disclosure we're doing this because the game is really interesting and is of the moment but uh john is somebody that i know personally and game with on a somewhat regular basis when our lives actually align so like we're we're coming from a place uh if you're looking for a completely unbiased review this is not going to be it no no we yeah we we know john um though interestingly when the Kickstarter first finished and I started looking at the finished product, I actually wasn't super sold. Uh, I've followed the development for long enough that uh, I was kind of surprised how far it had gone from the things that I remembered. And originally it kind of turned me off the game. Uh, It wasn't really doing much for me. And then I actually sat down with the physical book once it got here and figured, okay, I'll give it another shot It's such a beautiful book. And it completely reversed my opinion again, uh, and now I'm back totally on the bandwagon for it. Um.
1: I'm, I'm really liking it so far. I've had a chance to play um, a couple small sessions, uh, not long enough to really sink my teeth into it. I feel like it's going to shine a lot more as a campaign game. Uh, but do you have a, a first of three? Yeah,
0: yeah, I have a first of three. Um, so now that we've got all the the front matter out of the way, mm-hmm. uh, I think the first thing that really stands out to me about this game is um, the positional moves. Uh, so the, the game has some Apocalypse World DNA in there. Um, John's not using the Powered by the Apocalypse World brand, uh, uh, powered by the Apocalypse branding, which uh, is probably the right call. It's it's a fair ways off, but there's a lot of that thinking that's apparent. Um,
1: There's a bunch of discussion on Twitter right now actually about uh, now that Apocalypse ideas of moves as triggers and RPGs as conversation is kind of part of the lexicon, it's really hard to think in games about games in any other way. Like whether or not you use the die mechanics or, mm-hmm. or the special one, two, three uh, move results or anything like that, those two things, I think, are part of RPG design for a long time.
0: Yeah, and so it, it makes it harder to draw that line. Um, I mean, it's definitely inspired. You can see that pretty clearly, but I think it's right to not use the branding. I think it makes more sense to stand alone. And actually, I would say that a lot of games related to Apocalypse World, um, I would like to see more games push in this direction to use those things, uh, but less literally take on Apocalypse World stuff. Um, having, you know, done one of the bigger things that directly took on Apocalypse World stuff, <laughs> I'm going to talk, but uh, that it's really nice to see that. So the, the kind of central resolution mechanics uh, are similar to moves, um, but instead of there being a, a large menu of them, there's basically three, and you decide which one to use based on... Uh, what kind of situation you're in? If you're in a controlled situation where you are doing something where you kind of have the upper hand, you use one of them. If you're in a risky situation, kind of in the the middle, uncertain resolution, use the other, or the second one. And then if you are in a uh, a bad for you situation, I forget the exact phrasing. I think Adam's about to look it up here.
1: Well, uh, so I, I the way that I read it was differently from how you read it. I think. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. How did yeah. You so read but, it? but you go ahead and finish the uh, the last one's desperate. As Desperate. far as this.
0: Yeah. Uh, so between those three, uh, one of my favorite bits is you're still judging the fiction, but instead of um, the main point of judgment there being uh, kind of which resolution mechanics to use as an Apocalypse World or Dungeon World, uh, you're always using basically the the same mechanics uh, based on which situation you're in and then which stat you use to do that is deliberately open-ended. Um so how did you read this? So before I go further I want to I want to understand. Yeah, totally. So so the action roll chapter, uh-huh. right? The action roll
1: portion uh the concept is that really it's when you do something challenging roll plus roll stat or whatever. So mm-hmm. you you're just rolling a big dice pool and then your highest number is is whatever and if you roll multiple sixes you create, like you know, big deal. The the more important thing is that the, he's got a six part procedure here for rolling stat that kind of tears a lot of the move structure down. You know, I like you guys have uh, in Dungeon World the the defy danger kind of here's my generic role if you don't know what other role applies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vincent's got uh, kind of action under fire type of thing. Uh, action role is what this is for blades, right? Yeah. So the player decides what they want to do And the player chooses the stat, so there's like uh, 12 stats in uh, Blades. And basically you can be like, oh yeah, I'm totally going to convince him to get out of the way, and I'm going to use my uh, ghost stat, you know, my my whispering stat or whatever. And the DM's going to be like, well, that's, that's a really weird stat to use. So then the GM chooses the position and the effect level, which... The GM can be like, "That's that's you're. I mean, you're pretty controlled. Nothing crazy is going to go on, but your effect level is going to be super limited. Like, I can't even see how this is going to actually work.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, your ahead. reading is the same, but okay. I read that as uh, the really interesting thing being there that controlled, risky, and desperate each have different descriptions of the uh, outcomes of the roll. Mm-hmm. So you, as you said, you roll dice, uh, and for example, for controlled, uh, if your highest dice is a six, mm-hmm. you do it. Uh, if your highest dice is a four or five, you hesitate, uh, and if it's a one to three, you falter. Um, so the one of the interesting effects is that these can fall through to each other. So for controlled on a four to five, you hesitate. It says withdraw and try a different approach, or else do it with a minor consequence. A minor complication occurs. You have reduced effect. You suffer lesser harm. You end up in a risky position. One to three, you falter. Press on by seizing a risky opportunity, or withdraw to try a different approach. But so your your position is that. Because the fictional
1: positioning of the players is really about whether it's a controlled, risky, or desperate situation, that that's the move separation.
0: I would argue that that's more the move separation than, uh, for example, what stats roll. Because uh, my second item, I'll actually preview it, is about how the uh, text deals with these things and the who chooses... Who has um, control over staying which things mm-hmm. is a really interesting aspect of this book.
1: Yeah, the actual the players having cho- the players having the ability to choose whatever stat they feel fits mm-hmm. is my number three, yeah. um, because I feel like a lot of the interesting stuff that happens in these games is kind of this conversation between the GM and the player as you negotiate where exactly what you're doing fits. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I want to run up to that dragon and hit it with my sword, and the DM's like, well, you can't just do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just like that that negotiation is much more uh, much more part of the procedure, it feels, here uh, than in a lot of games.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think that's definitely an interesting aspect, and I look forward to hearing more of your, your stuff on it, but... <clears throat> The thing that I find really interesting is just this division of where moves fall mm-hmm. and the way that these things work. And the um, I would say that in some ways the choosing of the stat is somewhat orthogonal. So I've actually hacked Blades already. Um, in addition to the hack, that I'm signed up for doing it as part of the Kickstarter uh, for this uh, Western game. Um, we had called it Frontier in playtesting, but apparently somebody else released a, a game with the same name. Kind of trying to do like a Generation Legends of the Fall kind of thing. Uh, and it used card draws, um, and this similar fall through mechanic, but instead it's uh, you draw. I think it's two cards by default. And then for each trait that applies, you draw another card. Sure. Um, and it's still the part that I've, I'm trying to highlight here: the the way that this makes you look at the situation, judge the situation, and then the situation can fall through. Still applies even if you have a very different mechanism for deciding how many dice you roll or how many. Yeah, the the who gets to choose what is is. Interesting but orthogonal. Totally. So the the reason that I really like the stats, so I think we're mm-hmm.
1: in a little bit of violent agreement here. But, oh, of course. Uh, the reason I really like the a stat podcast, pick, so we can
0: violently agree about it. That
1: <laughs> that's thing. right. Uh, is because as you you start off with this piece of conversation going on, and somebody's like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to you know snipe him from way over here," and then they pick a stat that you didn't expect as the DM, mm-hmm. which suddenly totally changes what the fiction is in your head, right? Yep. Instead of instead of picking, like, a normal hunt-style stat for a snipe, they actually want to do, uh, I don't know, this finesse-style, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, they're going to hit this weird thing and it's going to drop on their head type of... Or thing. some kind
0: of, like, uh, I forget the stat for it, but a a mathematical banked shot. They do all the angles right. in their head, and, yeah.
1: And I, I just really like how that changes... Like, that means that a lot more of the fiction is in control... Of the player just by default, mm-hmm. because they're looking at their sheet anyways. They're trying mm-hmm. to angle for their their high dots or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then,
0: uh, yeah. So that's that's the, the crazy then thing. the GM plays into that with how they judge the fictional situation. There, there's a lot of things that um, I'll, I'll get back to this in my second. Actually, I'll even save that for the second portion. Let's go second portion right well, now. I've still got interesting things to say oh, about these moves fine. because currently the way that they're written, they all. Um, Trickle down. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a more controlled situation and you roll badly, you have the option to try again at a worse situation or to kind of walk away, which is a really interesting uh, player choice because it allows for kind of um, nothing happens rolls, with, which this isn't quite, but a, a roll that has very limited effect. It isn't a super failure or a super success, it's just kind of a you tried it and figured out it doesn't work uh but it still makes that relatively interesting because you're making choices along the way mm-hmm. as opposed to the uh you know I pick a lock in third edition D&D and roll a dice and it says you don't pick the lock and my I say well I pick it again like do I, I Yeah it's it's like the dogs in the vineyard raising the stakes question right A little bit but it's uh changing the situation uh-huh. like I like that it's um it's not necessarily escalating the situation, it's worsening your position in the situation. Sure. So, you know, you try to bluff your way past with your ghost skill uh, and... Somehow that's controlled. I don't know how working with ghosts is ever going to be controlled. but uh, And then it goes down to risky and now uh, the guard has called over his supervisor because he's not sure what's going on. You, you still haven't been found out, but now the stakes are higher and you're more at risk of failure. And then you can try again and that actually can fall through to the uh, desperate. So then, you know, they have you at sword point and are asking you to prove that this, uh, are asking you where you got that ghost because ghosts are illegal in the setting. Um yeah and it it that fall through is really interesting, and it makes me wonder if there would be an interesting way to fall up instead currently you know if you're in a dis- desperate situation kind of the best result on all of them is more or less you get what you set out to um, and in some of those crits are you know extra effect and stuff like that but it it's basically success looks pretty common across them. It's a little different. Um, but I wonder about escalating successes where, oh, you can take your... Uh, a com- uh, in a desperate one, you can take a compromise, or you can make the situation risky kind of question, and yeah. kind of push it up. I think the problem there is then it could loop, and now you're back to dangerous and you get these kind of ongoing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is almost a strength of it, I think. Uh, because the, the fall-through makes it so things can be um, kind of one action, but turn into multiple roles in a really nice, organic way. Way. Right. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of link test from bu- uh, Burning Wheel or something like that, where it helps expand actions into enough uh, enough to be interesting, depending on the action. You and know? you didn't have
1: to plan it beforehand, mm-hmm. and then the tension can rise from roll to roll. Yeah. like that's that's the uh, you know going straight to. Oh,
0: that's I, I'm I want to say that. Don't spoil yours. Yeah, don't spoil yours. Yeah. We we have to stick to our format. We're finally back in format. We've got to stick Matt with this. So yeah th- I think that 's the really interesting uh, one of the really interesting bits to this uh, and the one side effect of it that i 'm still not sure how I feel about um, and this is some of the complexity that first struck me in the game going back to it mm-hmm. is how many of the um, how many bad things there are that can come out of it, like a lot of the game is actually. Uh, dedicated to tracking all the bad stuff that can happen. Mm -hmm. And then how do you uh, get rid of that bad stuff through various ways of recovery. Um, And that makes the game quite a bit larger and more complex than I think I had originally expected based on some of the earlier versions. Um, And tracking good stuff is a large part as well. But because there are so many ways to... To fail at those different uh, levels, mm-hmm. and the GM there's a lot of fictional things to represent you know is your character actually hurt, are they stressed or are they in a bad situation? All these uh, bad, tracking all these types of bad things is a lot of the game have you found,
1: have you found in, in play to have a hard time with it because my group my group didn 't have much of a problem so so the way that the way that blades does uh, kind of Bad stuff happening to your character is very player-controlled. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super cinematic. Basically, I say, "Here's a horrible thing that's going to happen to you," and you say, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to have that happen to me." And you just take, you take stress based on a kind of a resistance roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that there's this stutter after a, when I make a hard move that is, "Okay, here's the craziness," and then actually, no, that didn't happen. Uh, which on the one hand is really nice because that makes it part of the negotiation and you understand how bad it could be mm-hmm. and I never feel like I have to pull punches on a consequence, but on the other hand it means that there's a bunch of stuff that became part of the conversation that got said mm-hmm. that is not actually true mm-hmm. uh, which can be a little confusing at times.
0: Yeah, um, I think the longer I've played, the less it has got to me, but at first, keeping track of all of the Different things uh, because there could be faction stuff there right. could be your you, belongings and stuff there can yeah. be stress there can be um, uh, I'm for, uh, harm like and then harm is its own uh, very descriptive thing but that always adds a little bit of overhead to it like there's um,
1: the system for harm is different from the system for stress is different from the system for faction relationships is different from the system for growing your own crew is different from... Yeah, there's a lot of game here.
0: There's a lot of game here, and I feel like uh, a decent part of it is to help fictionally measure some of these consequences, which is a good thing. Like it's, It means that you've written down something that's a reminder of this, and they're all described in a very um, apocalypse-worldy way where that is both prescriptive and descriptive so that you're not... Uh, tracking all these things doesn't You're reduce them down it. to yeah. a, a number. There's a lot of uh, descriptive hooks in there. Totally. So it all works, but I, I feel like this tracking, part of where all this game comes from, I don't want to say complexity because that's too negative, but where all this uh, stuff comes from is because we need to be able to track the number of outcomes from all of these moves, mm-hmm. kind of. Um, the the number of ways things can go wrong and be need to be tracked in a pretty significant way, is large. So yeah. there's this much stuff.
1: Just reading through the book uh, when I had the PDF before I had the chance to play, it felt like it was going to be way too gamey. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, there's a huge section in there about, oh yeah, here's how many stress points you take, and, and here's how we do all of these clocks, and when you do this, you know, mark off this many sections of a clock. And I don't, you know one of the things that people do in RPGs that takes them further away from the games I want to play is they make everything into numbers and stats and, you know, here's how many bubbles you fill in on the sheet and Mm -hmm. and not the actual narrative that's going on kind of in everybody's head. And the further you go down that route, uh, it turns into this game where the people around the table aren't actually caring about you know what's going on in the fiction. They're caring about how many dots and how many clock faces and how many whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in play, it's turned out not to go that way. Um, but we are very much playing. You know, you know my my DM style. We're yeah. playing very fast and loose, and you know standard standard unless something is obviously really weird for position or effect, and you know basically going super super heavy fiction first. Um, which might not be the way that you know. I, I'm very curious how Blades responds to different DM styles. I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh, so most of my play has been in that style as well, um, including having John run it a few times, a couple times, something like that. Um, and the I feel like my experience has been the same that it doesn't become just kind of the counting bubbles, but um, I am curious, like, and I know that John has gotten feedback from people, and I think that's part of how the book is so well-written for a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to head to myself. We should hit your first point.
1: Totally. Well, that is my my first point was that the players choose the stat. My second point being that, uh, you know, talking about all of this complexity in the system and something that we've been talking about a little while uh, is that about, you know, maybe a third to some large portion of this book is an extremely detailed setting description. Super detailed, bunch of maps, bunch of descriptions of the factions and the people and the places and everywhere in the map. And, I mean, it's really, it's a cool thing to read, uh, but it makes me feel like if I really want to play the game as it wants to be played, I need to know everything about everything. So that when the players go, oh, yeah, you know, and we do this thing, and I'm like, well, there's this character who lives like a house away and he heard this thing, and now I have to, you know, make sure that that matches, and what factions is that person involved in, and oh, yeah, this person is also involved in that thing, and like, I have to memorize, you know, this entire setting book, which I hate to do. Mm -hmm. And so, so I don't, and then I play, and then I'm like, oh, but I should have been using that character. and Oh, I miss this faction who should have been there.
0: Yeah, uh, so it's interesting. I think we had almost exactly the same points, just in different orders, because you just did my point number three, nice. my answer number three, um, which means that I actually have some stats on how much of the book is setting. Uh, it's pages 237 through 340, so 103 pages of setting, uh, which is 30% a little over of the book, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. It's uh, That is towards the end of the book, which I think is an interesting choice because it means that you've got all the game, and then there's the setting stuff um and the game uh, my second point was, is about the text itself um and the game is really clear on uh this is a distillation of best practices but it's your game like it it bridges that gap i think between some of the discussion of uh the perhaps more apocalypse world you know these rules are here and you do them and uh maybe a more um Lamentations of the flame Princess approach of uh you the rules are just kind of a suggestion um, and it bridges that with uh, a plum, I think in saying like this, there is a reason for all these things, but they are also are yours now. treat them like they 're there for a reason, and that includes the setting mm-hmm. um, and I think you get something really smart, which is that it 's partially like a an internal personal thing, like Definitely. when all the setting's there and you don't get to use it, you're like, oh, but yeah. Like,
1: don't get me wrong. There's, it's first, it's a beautifully written setting, and it's evocative, and there's a bunch of random encounter and random faction generation and random whatever that I love to have just on hand. Um, but you know, growing up playing D and D with here's the module, and read through this 200-page book to know exactly where all of the rooms in every dungeon are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it's like, there's no blanks. And when there's no blanks, I feel like uh, super, super trapped in whatever system. So what I did, what I've been doing is I've been mostly ignoring it mm-hmm. and only occasionally going to it if I really, really need to, but it's still, it still just itches at the back
0: of my head. Well, and there's an interesting, uh, I'm not sure whether it's quite a conflict or a feature there, but the character sheets have a lot of stuff that um, in Apocalypse World, which it bears a similarity to, would be stuff that you'd kind of ask or make up on the fly. Um, Right. You know, what a player asks you, oh, hey, I've got this item on my character sheet. What does that mean? And uh, if it's something that's not clear, like uh, Apocalypse World has barter or whatever. Uh, I mean, barter, I guess, is a mechanically defined one, but there's uh, some things there that are less clearly uh, game terms or staples of, you know, if somebody asks you what a gun is, you say, it's it's a gun. <laughs> right. um, there are some examples of that, and I'll, I'll dig up one in a second, that are um, they are they look like they should be that kind of thing almost but then the book actually does have some opinions on what they would be strict description style yeah so there's um electroplasmic ammunition right uh for one like if i ju- if i hadn't read the book and i saw that on the character sheet i would say okay what's electroplasmic am- ammunition tell me about it yeah we can make that stuff up yeah um there's uh dark sight goggles that one i'd probably have a guess on but i if the if i saw that in dungeon world and I had written it in Dungeon World, I would probably ask the player, like, what are dark side goggles? I'd expect them to see something about seeing in the dark, but if they came up with something else, I'd probably say, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I see. I see all of the evil in the world type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, whereas here there is a bit more um, opinion about what these things actually mean, mm-hmm. which uh, I think for some people could end up feeling like a bit of a conflict. But in some ways it's also a great, because uh, you can you could probably tear up your book and take out that last part and uh while the the playbooks do actually describe them in more detail in the the first part of the book where it goes over each of the playbooks you could get rid of a fair amount of that stuff and still uh, you know, answer it in play as usual. Um, but I think a, a big reason for the the setting at the back is partially that it's been a successful game on Twitch mm-hmm. and that there are people who are coming to the game in part because they saw a set of characters they really like do a certain set of things and they want the game to reflect those that world in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's also important, I think, because this... In some ways, it's a game that looks a lot like other games as far as kind of a, a team-based heist thing, but it also looks so different from any of those. It, it's not Leverage. It's not uh, a more D&D-esque, Band of adventurers thing. Um, th- there aren't that many games that do this kind of heist-based scoundrels, uh, which is interesting because it seems like a common enough thing in video games. Um and, and especially with this kind of like pseudo steam, steam pseudo electropunk maybe not quite steampunk. It's um, it's its
1: own crazy setting. I, like I say, yeah. you know, it's a beautiful setting, and I like that the general idea of the setting exists. Mm-hmm. It's but my like I say, my DM style is just really weird, and a friend of mine, you know really, really digs detailed setting books mm-hmm. uh, because they have a bunch better memory for that kind of thing than I do. Yeah. And then once you have all of that detail, kind of driving any particular responses at DM can be much easier if you can remember all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or if you just have the section of the book open and you're like, oh yeah, I know what's around there and where you're going to hit and let's talk about you know, whatever. And if everybody at the table has read all of the setting detail... I mean, you can do some crazy stuff there, too.
0: Yeah, like, detailed settings like that and um, fiction about a game are two things that I keep on kind of wishing I liked more. Like, (laughs) I want to be the person who has really gotten into the Forgotten Realms novels and really read the setting books. Or, uh, like, Glorantha or uh, Tecumel. Like, I would love to be the kind of person who has read and absorbed those but settings don't do a whole lot for me. Um I'm I'm giving it another try with Blades in the Dark and Mittermark, the new Torchbearer oh, yeah, totally. setting. Uh but both of them on first pass, I get I I try to get myself all excited for them and ready to go and then I just kind of start reading it and a couple pages in I'm like, "Uh, oh, hmm. I think some of that's
1: also kind of uh I don't know, the clash in a way, between the, the Marvel RPG and the Star Wars RPG,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: Marvel's like, okay, you're Superman, cool. And the Star Wars RPG is like... Marvel's like,
0: you're Superman.
1: Well, uh, Spider-Man, or whatever.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah me, me
1: and my comic background. Uh, you know, Mar- Marvel says, you're this specific superhero, mm-hmm. and Star Wars is like, you can be a Jedi if you want, and you're like, well, I kind of want to be Luke. And it's like, no, you can't be Luke, that's not cool. Yeah. Um, And... Various settings want various things, and various players want various things, and it just gets it gets complex. But so, if you really like detailed setting, uh, Blades has a really great detailed setting.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's better presented than a lot of similar settings. Mm-hmm. Um, it is fairly accessible. It's fairly referenceable, and um, it does a pretty good job of emphasizing getting the setting into your head. Kind of. Um, there, there are some setting books that are almost too much reference, they are too much, like, uh, if you want to know the exact population of this place, here's where to look it up, whereas I feel like Blades emphasizes more, um, this area is crowded. Like, that's a thing that I can get into my head and internalize, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, this area has 10,000 citizens. Uh, is, is that a lot? Is that a few? Um, yeah, for the area,
1: what does it feel like? Yeah. One of the other crazy things about a lot of settings is, I mean, the Forgotten Realms in particular here's a whole bunch of books and background, and we know what happened every year. So you can't really play in the past, or you can't screw with anything, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas, I mean, I don't follow the Blade's Twitch stream so much, so maybe that has happened, Mm -hmm. basically on accident. But it feels like, you know, you have all of these characters and factions, and here's the starting point, and I can kill half of these people, and the game still works, you know? And I don't feel like I'm breaking the rules
0: I I feel like uh, my impression from a little bit of watching Twitch streams and a little bit of, I mean, reading the book and a little bit of play is that it's um, a bit like describing the state of the galaxy at the start of A New Hope Mm -hmm. um, and then saying, but Luke and Leia, I mean, that that one's a little tough because there are characters who, from the background, have to be so central. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a bit like getting to that state and then saying who does the next thing is kind of up to you. Like, it's describing a world uh, that's ready for action. Um, but from that point on, it's pretty open-ended, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting the way that it's approached, and th- I like seeing um, games try this that aren't maybe the kind of game you would expect to do this. Uh, it, I I don't like trying to, like call uh, call indie games or whatever, trying to describe where that falls, but um, designers who share a lot of heritage with John, for example, people that I, I know he's worked with and designed with don't tend to do mini settings like this. Right. Um, with Fate maybe being a little bit of the exception, but uh, even there, yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people play Fate with just kind of the basic idea, and then we make up all the details. Yeah, do
1: you think that that's a you know, that's a DM th- kind of culture thing in in this group. Basically we've got we've got a lot of DMs who are like, sure, this is we'll make up all this stuff right on the fly, right here, right now. Uh, you know, Apocalypse World has pretty much its entire setting baked into moves and stats and nothing else. I mean I've run an Apocalypse you can run Mad Max Apocalypse World, but I've run Jungle's Apocalypse mm-hmm. World and I've
0: run Cyberpunk Apocalypse World because well, I mean why not, right? Yep. Um, I think that part of it is is actually baked into the game design. And I think this may be some of why it um, you've had a, a tougher time with it. Uh, and I'll, I'll see. I haven't. I've only run a tiny bit of the game. Mostly, I've played it with John. So I'll, I'll see how I feel about it as a GM. But mm-hmm. um, I think there is a bit of a tension between uh, the GMing style of. Um, responsive improvisation, uh, letting some characters define stuff, or players define stuff. Um, generally, kind of a say yes or roll the dice, even though that isn't actually a principle of Blades in the Dark directly. But um, the once you have all that stuff and you have a setting, like in some ways an established setting means that you need to say no to some things. You, you need to say, actually, that's not how that works mm-hmm. um, if the player comes at it from a different way. Whereas... Uh, there's always some degree of that, because even like Dogs in the Vineyard, which is the say yes or roll the dice game, if somebody is like, oh yeah, and the uh, the church believes that God's watchdogs uh, have the right to steal from anybody. They they, they say that. Like, that's something that as a GM, I'd still be like, "Uh, I don't know about that. Right. Anywhere that there's an established fiction.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even even... Even in the hardcore improv games, there is an established fiction if you've been playing for more than a few minutes, mm-hmm. because you already have the few minutes ago of established fiction. So that's not as much of a big deal as the, you know, huge amount of established fiction that we might not all be coming to the table with, depending yeah. on how much you can remember of the, of the setting book. Yeah. Um, but that probably doesn't matter for most groups. Yep. Um, Because if if somebody knows it, they can bring it up, and if nobody knows it, then you can make it up, and the game won't break.
0: Yeah. so I think it's more of a a tension for uh, people like you and I who get really excited by playing a game the way it's written and kind of, like, understanding it and messing with it. And uh, when you combine that with our... um, styles that maybe make it harder to make use of the setting, we have this tension of, I want to use all this great stuff, I want to use it, uh, but it doesn't line up with how I'm running the game. Um, Yeah, which uh, I actually wanted to circle back around because I don't think I ever clearly stated my second answer, which is about uh, how well this text is written. And I can't decide if that is... a wonderful book. Yeah, I can't decide how much of that is because we're we're super nerdy about this stuff. Because there are lots of ways that John works in um, explanations of how or why things are. So uh, one of my favorite ones, uh, partially because of where it hits on the page break, page one... Uh, has two paragraphs about the game and then three paragraph summary of the setting. And it's all pretty straightforward. You know, this is a game where a group of daring scoundrels build criminal enterprise, et cetera, et cetera. The setting, the game place, takes place in a cold, foggy city. Um, it's industrial. The city is also fantasy. But then you turn the page, hit the next page, and the next paragraph is, the point of all this is to create a pressure cooker environment for our criminal escapades. And it starts breaking apart okay, these are the facts of the setting, but this is also why the setting is this way. Uh, You know, the city is basically not something that you can leave and let, things blow over because that makes the game more interesting without limiting player resources. Like, the other way to say that is, you know, oh, you're you're criminals, you can't afford to just get out of town. Right. Uh, But here, there's there's actual... There's
1: a lightning wall, man. Yeah, there's a literal (laughs)
0: barrier to why you can't get out of town, so you're stuck in this pressure cooker environment, and it keeps on doing that throughout the book. There's a number of these... um, There's the section that breaks down who decides what, which is really interesting because my first read through of it, I was about to write John kind of a nasty gram email on like, are you sure about this? Uh, And the more I thought about it, so it's in a a section called judgment calls on page six. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, which actions are reasonable as a solution to a problem is a player call. Which uh, is one of those things that, if you argue kind of from a bad faith player perspective, is always capable of breaking down oh no because there's there's the
1: linkage, so this is probably right where you 're getting, but this <laughs> is why I picked this as my number three um the The linkage between the player is deciding what is valid, but the DM is deciding how valid it is. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, the player can pick something that seems really weird, and the DM can be like, "You know, that's really weird." Like, those—that's the
0: responsibility that's
1: placed on people, right?
0: Sure, but this is. Um, there's actually a section in Dog Eat Dog that tries to address this head-on, and I think kind of hangs too much a lantern on it. Uh, that's uh, titled something like "Why You Can't Blow Up the Moon" or something like that. Um, because the if the player says that uh, a reasonable... Uh, which actions are reasonable as a solution to a problem, and the player says, uh, I blow up the planet beneath me or whatever, like, you can always push that to the extreme where it doesn't work, but that's uh, a problem... That's the same problem as uh, if you're playing a board game and somebody is using loaded dice or something. It, it's If somebody is not interested in playing the game, you can't solve that with right. a, a rule for it. Um, but I, I suspect, maybe I haven't been following the discussion closely enough, maybe this has already happened, but I bet there's going to be some, uh, you know, how how can a player do this? At least from some corners of the internet. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the great thing about pen and paper role-playing games is that they're not computer role-playing games. You do not have to solve everything inside the system. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, you see, you see the D&D... Uh, crazy character builds where somebody picks a kobold and makes them, you know, a wizard and does something crazy with multi-classing. And it's like, oh, yeah, this guy can blow up uh, gods at level three or something. And it's like, no, because in any normal game, somebody at the table would be like, look, look, guy, that's that's not okay. Yeah. This, this is not going to be a fun game, so don't do that. And that's that's it. You don't need. You don't need some rule in the system to deal with that. You need, mm-hmm. you need people outside the system. So.
0: Well, and it's interesting because uh, I think this gets brought up a lot in games that say that the player has a call on something. Mm-hmm. Whereas the fact that the GM has the call on that all the rest of the time. Like if a GM says their NPC uh, blows like it, up the moon, blows yeah. up the moon uh, without any you know, in-game explanation, they're just like, oh, uh, you're attacking the police guards, so they blow up the moon. Um, like that is not something that any RPG says the GM can't do, and most of them say the GM has, like, complete control over everything in the world. Uh, but once you say that the player can do that in somewhat of a more limited form, it mm-hmm. becomes kind of... Uh, even for me, as somebody who plays a lot of these games and stuff, I, I still initially was like, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> it's, it's a magic circle question, I think, partially. Mm-hmm. Like, we have
1: all... we uh, m- Most RPGers have bought into the constraint that the GM is primarily there as a facilitator Mm -hmm. and as a facilitator that means that you know you are less involved in having fun in a lot of these games as you are in making sure that everybody's okay and having a good time and hosting and all this kind of stuff and it's like as part of that of course you wouldn't do something crazy like blow up the moon mm-hmm. um unless i mean uh, you're playing a star wars rpg and you've got the uh, death star yeah uh but but yeah the players because they don't have that cultural host role you know it's like you it's like you'd need a rule that is don't shit on the carpet right you know yeah. it's it's
0: it's just part of the the social contract that's well, all you really need. And that's something that uh there's a bit of a culture I think in some corners of role playing games of uh disruptive players being both a bad thing but also kind of a a semi point of pride like uh how you deal with them and being just a slightly disruptive player are both kind of lauded uh you know I I know plenty of people who tell fun stories of convention games where they showed up and did kind of some mild griefing. Um, and that was like, look at how fun and wacky our convention game was. Uh, and if a GM showed up to do that, it would just be, you would say that they were a bad GM and a game that uh, maybe gives players a bit more permission to do that uh, isn't really all that different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the judgment call section is really cool because it goes on from there to uh, who decides how dangerous and how effective a given action is in the circumstances, the GM, uh, does the situation call for a dice roll, and if so, which one? The GM. And all of these are phrased as who has final say, not who is involved in the discussion because everything's right. a discussion. Uh, but these kinds of things, and just the way the book is written, a lot of error parts of the book describe a, a rule or a thing and then describe... Why it is that way in a way that doesn't feel too much like a designer note, um, which is a really, really interesting technique. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, impressed that John pulled it off so well. Uh, John and uh, his development, developmental editor Sean, um, and everybody else who was involved. Uh, and Karen. John did his
1: own layout, right?
0: Yes, but John is uh, a super professional layout person to begin with. Um, yeah, it's.
1: I mean, you can really tell.
0: Yes. Uh, it's, it's a pretty sweet thing. It is a very nice book, uh, and I have... Uh, I mean, mostly because I learned most layout stuff from John, I have a few complaints about layout. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really... It, it's amazing how well all of this comes together. Um, and so, I'm curious to see where it goes next, kind of popularity-wise. I know it's, uh, it's definitely a hit, and I'm curious... Um, So we're kind of in that, like, the game has been fully released, and I I think the arc is typically, after everybody gets their books, there's a peak of excitement uh, around the Kickstarter and it finishing. Mm -hmm. And then people get the books, and there's a peak of excitement of lots of photos, uh, especially with a book this beautiful. Right. Look at my awesome book. Uh, And then I think things quiet down a little bit while everything kind of incubates. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, as we kind of move through that incubation and get to people really... Jumping into, into it. an actual
1: game of it,
0: yeah. How how much more it explodes, mm-hmm. um, and how the um, audience develops. I feel like there's somewhat of a shift in some of the RPG audience, uh, at least for some games, into um, people who are finding these games through Twitch, as opposed to people who are finding them through. RPG net or store games, mm-hmm. I think story games is still alive we 're all modern now yeah it, it's interesting, and as somebody who doesn 't do much twitch stuff i 'm starting to feel like out of the loop it's really interesting uh, but yeah I'm, I'm curious to see where Blades goes next uh, because it's a, a really interesting game uh, and one that i 've enjoyed playing quite a bit, definitely, so to number ones number ones uh, my number one is the uh Positional moves. Positional resolution. How so? Like, dig into that a little bit more. Didn't we just do that? Kind of. Kind <laughs> okay. of, sort of. Positional resolution where uh, you, you judge a situation by how risky it is, and the moves can fall between those. Uh, so sure. a controlled position can go less controlled, and you can end up doing multiple roles to resolve one situation with meaningful incremental fiction along the way.
1: Well, it's cool. Because my, my number one's way better, because it's the engagement role and the flashbacks so we didn't hit your
0: number one already
1: no way man uh, my so 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 you know i i really like the idea the the entire negotiation leading up to a role i think that that's amazing uh, i you know have my have my reservations about the setting but if there's anything that i steal from this game and use it forever it is yeah yeah, yeah I, I don't really care about your hour-long planning session here mm. what's the most important part let's do that we'll deal with everything else in the moment, because mm-hmm. you—I mean, I, you can put
0: that in pretty much anything, yeah. and it's
1: oh, it's so nice.
0: Uh, yeah, I—I <laughs> I could see that being a number one. I think I'm so used so to nice. it because uh, this is, You've as John says in the books, with him for a long yeah, time, yeah, like we, we do this a lot across a number of games, and. As John says, he's just codifying best practices and stuff. So while I've only played a little bit of Blades with him, I've played a lot of other games with him. There's there's the...
1: the, I mean, one of the pieces that is definitely system-specific is that, you know, John's written down a set of plans with details Mm -hmm. so that it becomes this... Here's a prompt. You know, what are are the... Here's the plans. Basically, what is your plan? It's kind of this. Okay, cool. What's the detail? Well, it's kind of this. Cool. We're there. We're in. We're done. Yeah. Everything is. Everything is going to get started, and we've certainly had very weird plans come up to deal with situations that I would have completely expected something else to mm-hmm. be. Like uh, I think they convinced somebody to go in and plant the bomb for them mm-hmm. uh, in one of the sessions that I did, um, and so you know people can definitely take it in a in a different direction, which is nice. But just avoiding the entire half an hour of contingency planning and, well, wouldn't this be a little bit better? Maybe this would be a little bit better. The loadout mechanic, which feeds right back into this, Mm -hmm. um, oh, it saves so much time and so much wasted discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things here that are designed to streamline play and I think that's part of why it's been big on Twitch because it it makes it easy to do this kind of stuff and it's very cinematic. Mm-hmm. It's the uh the experience of watching it is a bit like watching the movie where I mean it it's the thing that they do in all the um recent oceans movies where they the heist starts and then you cut to the way that they've already planned for some of the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's it does a similar thing to Um, Burning
1: Wheels' Duel of Wits Mm -hmm. uh, recommendation, which is if you have a couple of people at the table that are arguing about something, tell them to stop and roll dice Mm -hmm. uh, because you bring everything back into the system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the planning stuff becomes, you know, who can think of the craziest thing? And it's like, well, that's all great and stuff, but if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter.
0: So let's just, let's cut to the chase and... And the planning prompts are really good because they focus people on decisions that will matter in the game. It's it's otherwise, I think we've probably both seen it, the kind of planning where somebody gets bogged down on, like, who's carrying the torch or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, somebody has the torch. I don't care. Well, we'll I'll ask you who has the torch. At the point that it matters. Yeah. But I really need to know which path you're using to get to wherever. Or, you know, who who is going in to... to uh, blackjack the guard or whatever like those are the decisions that matter and pho- heck, provide the game providing a way to focus on those is really smart
1: yeah so actually what i've been doing in dungeon worlds in my in my pacific northwest marches game is we're using Perilous Journey as the engagement role mm-hmm. for things that are happening in the in this system. So, you know, they heard chanting a long way off and they're like, okay, so you know, how are we gonna get to that? How are we gonna find it? Where are we gonna do this? Where are we gonna do this? And I'm like, I mean, you know, do you wanna sneak in or do you want to just walk in? And yeah. they're like, we wanna sneak in. And I'm like, cool. Perilous Journey, let's see if you get the drop on them. No problem.
0: Yeah, that's actually really interesting because uh, I would suspect, though I haven't discussed it with uh, Paul and John, that there is a little bit of lineage there because we, we all played Dungeon World together, we did Perilous Journeys. I think they were part of how I uh, how Adam and I ended up with that move. And then uh, the engagement roles originally come from the regiment, which is John and Paul working together, and then ended up here in Blades. And uh, it's all trying to resolve that kind of, okay, get to the moment that we need to start zooming in on the action. Um, There's a lot of parts of the game that are designed, I think, to zoom you in and out smoothly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting piece because uh, one of the things that I feel like I did wrong with Perilous Journey is fixed by the engagement role because the engagement role just kind of assumes that you go straight to the action that you actually got together to play for. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for a lot of Perilous Journeys, uh, you know, up until maybe a couple months ago, you know, if, if, the, if a couple of roles were, were unhappy, then something would ambush them on the way. Mm-hmm. So they were nowhere near the place, something happened in the middle, and it's like, okay, we were going to investigate this tomb, but now we're going
0: to fight a bunch of kobolds and a dragon, mm-hmm. and we'll never see the tomb this session. That's an interesting design thing, because uh, the, the thing that I was um, directly thinking about when I first sketched out Perilous Journey was um, resolving overland journeys where uh, both the origin and the destination are places where you're going to stay somewhat zoomed out, Mm -hmm. kind of talking in the the zoom out metaphor more, Um, whereas if it's a perilous journey to something that you're going to zoom in on and go into more of the, like, moment-to-moment, okay, what are you doing, uh, then it's interrupting the thing that we want to get to with another zoom in. Like, it's uh, it's it's kind of designed to be a travel montage that will sometimes uh, have an actual scene in it, which is fine if it's getting you from... Uh, if it's Lord of the Rings. you know,
1: France to Russia, that's fine. Yeah. But if you're getting from your keep-starting tavern to uh, the tomb's entrance, it's a very different beast, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or if you're using it as an engagement roll and you just want to figure out how, yeah. Yeah, but I I didn't even think about engagement roll until I, you know, kind of grokked the Blades' entire system. Well, a little bit more, anyways. Um, But so, you know, and then I came to... Perilous Journeys from uh, Kingmaker Overland Adventure stuff from Pathfinder and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these ones where it's like, okay, well, how are we going to navigate and where's the random encounters and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, random encounters are fine if your game is really just about random encounters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the case where, you know, we really want to get to the tomb and investigate the tomb, uh, I, my
0: players roll poorly enough that they would never get there if... Uh, I would argue that random encounters actually serve a better purpose than that. They're they're not just there to like inject random things. Um they're they have the potential, I think, across most of their uses, including like in dungeons, to be a forcing function. Like mm-hmm. they're the way that um if your players uh instead of taking the most direct route are like, oh, we're gonna take this really roundabout route because um then the moon will be in the right phase when we get there or whatever whatever reason they come up with sure,
1: like. sure for the for the rogue like reason mm-hmm. you know the the food and starvation reason but but the problem is that you go from that system where here's my grid we're going to move from here to here on the grid uh and they're actually doing pathfinding to <clears throat> a system where okay you wanted to go here perilous journey roll some dice and as as soon as you switch there perilous journey kind of fixes the we're going to go around about route mm-hmm. because
0: you're you're just doing the full journey. That's the entire purpose of the thing. Sure. Uh, but I think that there's... I mean, maybe instead of uh, Perilous Journey having a zoom-in moment, it should instead be uh, more of the uh, encounter role... The, um, yeah, the encounter role, basically. The You arrive there having had a battle on the way or something. Like, I, I think there is a, a genre trope there that somewhat needs to yeah, be totally. acknowledged. Um. <clears throat> well, this is why so
1: and and I I have this this weird um you know part of my DM pattern talking about engagement roles as a way to skip this pattern is okay, this is what happens at time T, this is what happens at time T plus 1. Now we're at time T plus 2, what happens? Now we're at time T plus 3. And the idea of a role that says this is how my scene cuts and goes to the next scene Mm -hmm. as opposed to, okay, we're walking from here to here to here to here to here Uh, just kind of jumps me out of that pattern and makes it so that instead of having to do scene cut, you all took two damage or maybe you're all rested or maybe you all are out of rations or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have to worry about as much what happens in between even showing it on Mm -hmm. screen, right? Uh, So I really appreciate just the Just that the game makes that so much more explicit. Mm -hmm. It says, okay, something really cool is going to happen. Let's get right to that cool part. And you get to make, like, two options, and that's it.
0: Yeah. I I like it for Blade. I like it for the regiment. Um, I'm less sure that I would want to do something like that quite that far in Dungeon World. Like, I I think uh, the idea that... The things that happen to get you there are things that you might have a more detailed response and interaction with. I I kind of like uh, for some games, um, but I think it really depends. Like uh, Blades is more cinematic. It's more of the like we we cut to the action scenes and it has this idea of phases of play, which I like the way it, it presents them because they're presented as um, these are kind of like guides for the modes that you might be in and these are the likely transitions between them. But it's not. This uh, is the soundtrack. And yeah, you
1: can shift between soundtracks. Yeah. Like, there's the free play soundtrack, which is, you know, nothing crazy is going on, we're just kind of hanging out. There's the the score soundtrack, which is, uh, you know, the pounding, driving beat. There's the downtime soundtrack, which is kind of melancholy, oh, you know, how are they dipping into their drug habit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can change between soundtracks as you like, but you are definitely, you know when the music is picking up,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, and I like that that, uh, as opposed to another system that I also liked, but I think would have worked less well here, something like Torchbearer or Mouse Guard, where the phases are really tightly Rigidly, uh, uh, defined, and you move between them in very specific ways, which I think works fantastic for those games, but I think here it would have been... Um, it, it just wouldn't have flowed as well. Uh, the flow seems to be... Some, it's mentioned a few times in the the book. Like, it's it's kind of a game about flow.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's talking about how the book is written, right? That's a lot of the tone of the book is here is a whole bunch of ideas for the kind of the central path mm-hmm. for how to play this game. And if you want to go slightly off the path, the game will still work. It will still be fine. You know, I think in the in the DM assessment portion, he says, you know, if you just pick standard standard all the time, you'll probably be fine. Uh, But, you know, if something seems really weird, then, you know, use use it then, right? Don't feel like you always have to spend 20 minutes figuring out whether something is standard difficulty
0: or not. I I tend to vary my – using this or a similar system because I haven't run this directly much, but I've hacked it a fair amount. I tend to um, vary, I think – more than maybe John would, uh, but that may also be because I have less experience than he does. I think he may have kind of settled into the rhythm. Um, I like to vary quite a bit, actually. Um, I feel
1: like the game works because you can vary uh, the way that you want. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of a lot of these modern systems have built up uh, mechanical flexibility so that after you've played, you know, 15, 20 minutes in the system... Everybody's kind of got a feeling for what the DM is gonna do mm-hmm. like when I play dread I love doing double pulls in the beginning of the game when everybody feels it's super safe, huh? So you know the tower is very stable they're like, oh, I'm going to blast that alien with the shotgun. And I'm like, well, pull once to cock your shotgun and pull once to shoot it. <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, no problem. And then I can rush right to the crazy parts. Mm-hmm. And then I can drop back down to one pulse. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the system is flexible enough that I can do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just like the system of Dungeon World is flexible enough that I can be like, hey, you know, I think you need to defy danger to even get there. Or mm-hmm. you're, you're going to potentially lose your knife. Or this is going to be really bad. Here's, here's a whole bunch of difficulty-increasing Moves that I can add, but that another DM might not, or that another DM would add more of. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it really bothered me actually seeing the DM control difficulty in this game because one of my favorite things about kind of more standard Apocalypse World systems is the DM never has to choose the
0: difficulty number. So I I agree with you, but I think the GM in an uh, Apocalypse World game is setting the difficulty in the way that you just described. Exactly right. How and often do so, you roll?
1: But but it's it's a weird it's a weird thing. Like uh, you know, Burning Wheel and D and D I think caused more of this problem for me because in D and D it's like, well, uh, I don't know what the difficulty is going to be for this. I guess it's fifteen ish. You know, uh, and. Burning Wheel says, hey, you know, you can look at the skill and know exactly how difficult this is, but I don't want to spend 15 minutes looking at the skill. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I think it helps here that there's only three options and that one of them is the default, Um, but I think it is actually encoding the thing that is already the case in Apocalypse World and Dungeon World, where basically a tougher situation uh, means rolling more In particular, a tough situation that you start out in control of, so you have more chances for things to go wrong. Like Mm a a tough situation that is going to spiral out of control in uh, Blades in the Dark is one where you start with the opportunity to maybe get through with one roll, and then it snowballs into more rolls, which is the exact way that tough GMing works in. Uh, Apocalypse World or Dungeon World you start them off you often put them in situations where they have to make a tough roll, and then uh, if they fail it it spirals into more and more things and worse and worse situations and that's encoded into the game here whereas people often look at Apocalypse World and are like well how do things ever go badly like one role can always get me out kind of I guess
1: my thesis here is that I read the PDF I read the book and I saw all of these things that I feel like, oh, I'm not sure about this design. All these mm-hmm. all these clocks and these mechanical gamey details and this, I have to figure out my difficulty numbers and stuff. And then in play, it, it works. It yeah. works great.
0: Yeah, so. it works great. And the clocks are an interesting thing to bring up because we haven't talked about them much. Like the, the game tracks, uh, tells you basically to just build clocks for anything that you want to keep track of over time. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of the short version. And it gives some examples of, you know, you could have... Two clocks racing to completion for, or you could have a clock winding up for alert levels, or you could have a clock tracking progress on a project.
1: It's, um, it's
0: a it's a centralization of the mechanic, the mechanical
1: details of like apocalypse worlds. You know the idea of fronts that are on their way somewhere. The idea of you're going to disclaim decision making. You're not picking when this is going to happen. It's just this is going to happen at some point. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how long it takes for you mm-hmm. to get there. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful way to go as long as you can avoid, as long as you can keep it fiction first, I think it's, I think it's wonderful, so.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really nice way to remind yourself of all the things that are kind of on the table, in this case, literally, because you have cards on the table tracking them, Mm -hmm. uh, for ways that things can go wrong. I think that's, uh, at the heart of fronts, and it's at the heart of these clocks, is to remind you, um, to... Since the GM has to come up with bad things to happen so often, right. you need to have a really clear menu of these are some bad things that could happen. And the clocks are and fronts are your reminder uh, of how to do that. And clocks, I think, are a lighter weight version of it. I really like them for um, quick reminders of all these things, as opposed to the, the heavier weight front process, where right. you wrote down a bunch of stuff ahead of time. Uh, clocks are very very much uh, available in play like you could write some ahead of time but most of the time that i've i've used them or seen them used across several games they're always the kind of like oh okay uh, let's grab a note card and write that down because now we're tracking it right speaking of fox we uh, uh, have a long meandering episode.
1: <laughs> Anything else you want to you want to bring up? No, no.
0: It? I I I actually thought that we were going to hit our recap like fifteen minutes ago, so I started recapping my number one. But I will do a quick recap of my three points about three answers to uh, what's <laughs> the deal with blades in the dark uh, positional resolution, which we've spent a long time on. Oh, yeah. uh, the the clarity of the text is how I can most succinctly phrase it. But it's a very um, engaging and explanatory without being designer note-y. Uh, text. Mm -hmm. And um, the the genre and the setting are interesting to me, even if I don't always feel like I can make the best use of the setting. Yeah. And then my only big addition to that is that engagement role, which is such a beautiful thing. Such a great thing. Well, uh, hopefully this will mean that we're back to a regular schedule again, but uh, who knows? We've said that a few times. (laughs) Uh, So until next time, this is uh, Sage and Adam for another question.